The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Father, we praise you and thank you so much for being a God who is sovereign and good over all things. For being a God who cares about your people, even when we are rebellious and we have sinned against you. You are so gracious to send your Son into the world to redeem sinners like us, to give us new life, and to help us to partake in being victorious over the darkness of the world that we see. I ask that you would be glorified in this time, that you would use an unworthy vessel such as myself to bring forth your glorious word that your words would speak through me to this precious body here, that they would hear, that they would um, be convicted where necessary, that they would be encouraged, that they would be corrected, and that, that your word would be made clear to them so that they may live as you've called them to. Now, there would be a great hope coming out these doors today um, that all those who know you have truly overcome the world. I ask that this hope would run deep in our day-to-day lives and would give us great encouragement Um, in the midst of a very dark and trying world. Be with us this morning. Be glorified in this time and help us to to know you and to love you more by the end of it, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, 1 John chapter 5. If you're not there, please open there. We will be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Back in April of this year, NBC News interviewed a man named Brian Johnson who is trying to overcome the effects of aging and significantly delay the timing of natural death in his own life. In the interview, he explained how he spends approximately $2 million a year on medical technology, equipment, with doctors, all while being um, subjected to strict daily routines, to skin treatments, strict workouts, of vegan dieting, and the taking of many natural supplements. His goal in all of this was to show that through the right means, it is possible to significantly delay the effects of aging and eventually delay natural death. And though he claims that he is not afraid to die, he is doing everything in his own power with his time, his money, and his resources to overcome and delay the inevitable fate that we will all die. Now, many may look at that and go, well, that's, that's crazy. Others may see it as heartbreaking, as I think is the true response to such a story. Yet, if we're honest, many of us seek to overcome things in a very similar fashion. We desperately try to seek to overcome things like anxiety, depression, or fear, and we often, too, will go to extreme measures to overcome such obstacles. We'll take medication to overcome anxiety. We'll pursue the satisfaction of the flesh to overcome our depression, and we'll seek to build our financial portfolios to overcome the fears in our lives. And yet all of these fall short of a true and lasting solution. In the end, we too see that which we dread is often impossible to overcome. What if I told you that the God of the Bible offers people, just like us, the power to overcome the world, not just our struggles, but the whole world itself? That may seem daunting or even impossible. The world is a very dark and evil place that is at odds with its creator and is difficult for us to resist. 
What if I told you that you have that power? That you, right here in San Jose, have the power to overcome the world? That's what God's word says here in the text of 1 John 5. We all want to be overcomers rather than those who are, who are overcome, but most of us don't know how. So let's look at what God's word has to say on the matter so that we can be overcomers rather than those who are overcome. If there are a theme for the sermon, it would be simply this. Those who truly believe have been born of God and overcome the world. Those who truly believe have been born of God and overcome the world. See, without Christ, man is enslaved to the world, but through Christ, man can be set free and can overcome the world. We will see this truth in the text by looking at two points. One, everyone who believes has been born of God, and two, everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who believes has been born of God, and everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. So let's look at point number one. Everyone who believes has been born of God. As always, when we're doing more topical messages like this, it's important to get a little bit of context um, for the book that we're going to be in. So this, this book, First John, was written by John the Apostle, one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. Um, it's very similar in style to the gospel, that's after his name, which he is also attributed to him. It was written pr- towards the end of the first century. It is an epistle, but it has some special characteristics, um, primarily being it was not written to any particular church like many of Paul's letters were. It might have been a circular letter and could also be seen more as a sermon than a tight letter um, as some of the other New Testament epistles were like. It was written primarily to confront the false teaching at the time that was beginning to spread that was denying the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which is sometimes known as the spread of Gnosticism. This idea that Christ was not truly God, or if he was truly God, he couldn't have been truly man as well. Um, So John is writing this to confront that idea, to believe that Christ truly is God and became incarnate to save mankind. So reoccurring themes throughout this book emphasize the Christian's need for a genuine faith in Jesus, the need to love God and others, and our call to live in pursuit of righteousness. And all these themes are prominent in the very text that we're going to be looking at today. So returning to our text, um, it clearly states that our belief in Jesus being the Christ means that we have been born of God. If we believe Jesus as the Christ, it means that we have been born of God. And while it may be easy to claim belief in Jesus, the text reveals what a genuine belief will look like in the life of a true believer. So let's look at the text. Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. What does it mean to believe? This word in, in this text is often synonymous with the word faith, so if I use those interchangeably, um, they're, often, they're synonymous with each other. But it is more than just a simple belief that Jesus exists, but rather it's an affirmation of all that the Bible says that Jesus is and what he has done. So to believe is to affirm who he is, that Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all time began. He is God of God, light of light, true God of true God. He was not made, nor did he ever have a beginning. He has always been. He is of one substance with the Father, and by him all things were made. To believe is to affirm that about Jesus Christ. And to believe is also to affirm what he has done, that Jesus, being truly God, became truly man, that he lived a sinless life, 
He died as an atoning sacrifice in our stead, and then he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven where he is sitting at the Father's right hand awaiting his return to make all things new. To believe is to affirm the work that Christ has done. To believe is to trust in who Christ is and what he has done. It is like a patient that is under the care of a good doctor. The patient believes and trusts his doctor because he knows him, he knows who the doctor is, his qualifications and his character, and because he knows what the doctor has done in order to ensure that he is well cared for. Therefore, the patient trusts his good doctor. To not believe the Savior, as John is writing against, and as many were doing in this time, is to remain dead in sin and to remain enslaved to the world. John Gill, the 17th century Baptist pastor, put it this way, very simply, True faith is trusting in Christ's work alone for salvation and justification. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, through true belief. But you may ask, how does one obtain such a faith? Is this something we can find or acquire on our own or earn by our own strength? How do we get this kind of faith? Let's look back at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Christ being the Savior of the world, has been born of God. So in order to have this kind of faith, we must first be born of God. But then you may ask again, what does John mean by being born of God? Earlier in his gospel account, John the Apostle explained this in John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Starting in verse 12, the apostle writes, To all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John makes clear that those who receive the good news of the gospel and who truly believed are those who are born of God and have become children of God. Later, in John 3, 3, Jesus has his famous dialogue with Nicodemus the Pharisee, and they discuss back and forth how one is truly born again. Jesus answers Nicodemus, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this new birth, this being born of God, takes place when the Holy Spirit takes a dead heart and makes it alive. Hence the term, born again. The new birth is not by our own merit, but rather is a work of God in our hearts. No one can be born again without believing in the one who gives us this new life, that is, believing in Jesus Christ. So John has told us what we must believe to be saved, In order to believe, we must be born of God. So how can we know if our belief is genuine? How can we know that we truly have been born again? It's easy for many of us in the church, who have been raised in the church, who have been in the church for a long time, to simply accept, I made a profession of faith at one point, and to just start to go through the motions. But how do we know that our belief is genuine, that our profession of faith is true? John gives us two litmus tests in this passage. One, love, and two, obedience. The two tests, love and obedience, to show if we have truly been born of God. Look with me at 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, starting in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So let's look at the first test, that being love. We find that in verses 1 and 2. Love here, as John describes it, is twofold. Those who have been born again will, one, have a love for the Father, and two, will have a love for his children, the church. A love for the Father and a love for the church. And this would be no new teaching to any Christian at that time, as many would recall um, this command being emphasized by Christ himself in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. When he was asked by the teachers what the greatest commandment was, Christ himself said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And in verse 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This theme of a love for God that is revealed in one's love for Christians is also very prominent throughout the book of 1 John. Earlier in John's letter, the apostle writes this in 1 John 4, verses 20 through 21. Um, You can bump your eyes up to that part of the passage and read it along with me. Starting in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If we claim to love God and yet we hate our brother, it shows that our love for God is not real. Here in this passage, we see the order is reversed. In verse 2, we read, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God, thus showing the united and inseparable nature of the two. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have a love for God without a love for his children, nor can you have a love for his children without a love for God. To say you love God and not love his children is to reveal a false love for God and a faith that is fraudulent. See again the latter part of verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. If you love God, you will love his children. And we understand this on a human level. Say, for example, I have a friend who I consider to be a close friend. We enjoy each other's company. We hang out. We spend a lot of time together. Everything is good between he and I. But one day I witnessed him mistreating my children and being rude to my wife. When I confront him on the matter, he goes, yeah, I can't stand your kids. They're annoying, they're loud, and difficult to be around, and I can't bear to be around your, much, your wife that much either. They're just too much. I can't stand them. I mean, no one would actually ever say that to my wife, about my wife and kids, but say he did, and he says, but I love you, though. We can still be friends, right? He knows that I love my wife and kids, and he knows that it pains me to see them treated of and spoken poorly of. If he truly loved me, he would honor my wife and children and treat them well, even if he didn't like them that much. His love for me would be evident by his love to them. How much more so with us? When we lack in love for one another, what does that reveal about our love for God? When we see a brother struggling with anxiety or depression and we don't help him, John is clearly saying that in so doing we are hating him, thus revealing that we do not love God. Conversely, if we see our sister 
in need of physical provision or protection, and we rush to meet that need even at a great cost to ourselves, we reveal not only our love for her, but also our deep love for God. If we love God, we will love his children. Those two are inseparable from each other. This is the first test that our faith is genuine. But John offers us another one. Our love for God will also be revealed in our joyful obedience to his commands. This is the second test for one who has been born again. So obedience, we're going to look at verses 2 and 3 here. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we obey his commandments. Obedience to God's commands is the natural outworking of love. It's the natural outworking of a true love for God. If we truly love God, we will obey his commandments. Love is only real if it is joined with obedience. Love and obedience, too, are inseparable from each other. This is also a theme that is very prominent throughout the scriptures and is emphasized again by John in, his, in the gospel after his own name. We read this in John 14, verses 23 to 24, at the Lord's Supper. John quotes Jesus by saying this. These are, this is Christ's word speaking. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Earlier in John's letter, he makes the same point. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. In verse 4, the apostle writes, Whoever says, I know him, that being Jesus, but does not keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. They are Christ's teachings and his commands, and thus they are to be followed. Our love for Christ is revealed in our obedience to his commands. Before I moved out of the house, my brothers and I each had different duties and chores that were assigned to us on a weekly basis. They were commands that were put in place by my dad, and they were made abundantly clear to us, so we could not plead ignorance if we did not do our chores. Say one summer day I'm sitting in my room with little to do, and I remember the chore list that my dad provided to clean my room, to sweep him off the floors, and to clean the bathroom that my brothers and I shared. But instead of completing my chores as directed, I chose to play guitar, to read a comic book, or to go outside and play football with my friends. This is purely a hypothetical. This never happened, of course. <laughs> what would that say about my love for my dad? We could certainly say I'm not truly loving my dad the best possible because I'm not following that which he commanded me to do. Instead, I am doing that which was pleasing to myself rather than that which is pleasing to him. Now, if I did all my chores as he commanded me to do, did them in a well and a timely manner, it would reveal that I do love him because I am doing that which he desires and that which pleases him. And of course, that's what I always did. Right? <laughs> so too, that is with the case with God. We show our true and genuine love for him by our obedience to him and to his commands. This kind of faithful obedience shows our profession is not merely one made in word, but also in deed. In other words, the external fruit of our lives reveals the true heart that has been born again. 
the fruit of our lives living obedience to God reveals the internal heart that has been born again. And we see this again continuing in the latter part of verse 3. John encourages us and tells us that these commands God gives us are not burdensome for the believer because we have now been empowered to obey them through faith, being born of God. These commands, they are no longer burdensome to us. We had a chance to hear this preached last week from Matthew chapter 11. Christ does not give us meaningless laws that bind us up, but rather he gives us commands that are not only good for us, but will draw us to himself, and that will help us to have great rest amid our labors. This doesn't mean that obeying God won't often be difficult or won't be costly, but rather the commands that he gives will not be oppressive nor crush us because we have been born again and given a new heart and thus we will desire to obey these commands. They will be what we want to do. We will want to obey God because we love God most. And that's why the commands are burdensome. It will not be a genuine desire. If we desire something, it's not burdensome for us to go out and to do that thing because it is our heart's desire. If we've been born again, it'll be our desire and our great love to obey God. But how can we as sinners joyfully obey God? How can we as sinners obey God? On our own, we can't. We are unable to. But through Christ, the one in whom we put our faith We are not only given new birth, but also we are given the ability to love God. We're also given the ability to love his children and to then obey his commands, regardless of the cost. You see, a new heart that has truly been born of God will be one that is marked by love and obedience. Is is your faith authenticated by your love and your obedience to God? Does your faith reveal a love and obedience to God as we're seeing here in 1 John. First, take love. Do you love the people of God, both in word and deed? It's all easy for us to say we love each other, but does our our life reflect that? Does it reflect that love? What do you do when you see a brother struggling financially? Do you come to meet his need? When your sister needs a shoulder to cry on, do you take the time to listen to her, to counsel her? How often do you, out of love, encourage a brother and sister here in the church or rebuke and correct when it's needed someone in this local body? When you see someone stumbling or someone going and struggling in sin, do you come to them and rebuke them in love? In light of this passage, I would encourage you to examine your heart honestly to see if you have truly been loving your brothers and sisters in a way that authenticates your faith. So, want to authenticate our, life, our faith wants to be authenticated through our love. Second, through our obedience. Does your life display a consistent pattern of obedience to the commands of God? In light of the past several weeks, have you been striving to obey the six imperatives that the pastors have been teaching to? Are you feasting on God's word? Is your life one that is prayer-filled? Are you faithfully worshiping God with the body of believers here? What are you doing on a daily, weekly basis to serve the body How are you growing and building up the church here? And how faithful are you to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel to the lost and support those who are giving their lives, their time, all of who they are to bring the gospel to the lost? Your faith will be evident through your loving obedience 
in these ways and in all the ways that we are commanded to follow Christ in his word. A few months back, I had the privilege of witnessing a sister here display both this kind of love and obedience wonderfully. She herself was going through a very difficult trial, and yet I saw her continue to faithfully serve the body using the gifts and talents that God had given her faithfully. Additionally, she would intentionally seek out and minister to others who were going through hard times as well. Sunday, Wednesdays, throughout the week, she would be present to serve the body while also faithfully striving to help other members who were in need. She herself was struggling, and yet she displayed a true love for God by loving his children and obeying his commands. This faith-filled love and obedience is such a good thing. It is so good. It glorifies God greatly because in doing so, we're showing our love for him and we're showing our love for those whom he died to redeem. But there's another reason why we want to know that we've been born again. The passage first reveals to us that those who have true faith have been born of God. And second, it reveals that those who are born of God have overcome the world. So let's look at point number two. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Please look back to the passage again. 1 John 5, starting in verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So what does it mean here when John says, overcome the world? What does he mean by this? When John uses the term world, it refers to the world system, to sin, the evilness of the rebellion of humanity against God. Uh, We saw this a lot when we studied the book of Revelation, and it was a common theme that the Apostle John used in Revelation, in his gospel account, and in his letters. There's a constant contrast between those who are of God and those who are of the world. To be of God is to be at odds with the world, and to be of the world is to be at odds with God. They cannot be commingled together. We know how dark the world is from the atrocities that we see on the news, for its hatred for God, and for man's futile attempt to bring glory to himself. The world is a dark place. That is the world that John is referring to here. It is a world system full of sin and rebellion against God. But what does it mean when John says that we are to overcome the world, that we will overcome the world? This term overcome literally means victory. It is a victory that is both ongoing and it is also final. The victory is final because it has been won through Christ So no one can overcome it and nobody can overthrow him. But it's also an ongoing task as we await Christ's return. We are still fighting even though the fight has already been won. So John says that everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. Now we all were once part of this world system As Ephesians 2, 3 says very clearly, We were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were bound by sin, and we participated fully in the system of the world that was rebelling against God. Jesus also said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That is the state of all mankind before God. We are enslaved and part of the world system that rages against God, our creator. But by putting our trust in Jesus, the Christ, we have been born again. And we've been given new hearts and new desires not to sin any longer, but to live in obedience. And as such, we are no longer bound to the world system and darkness. We are no longer enslaved to this world evil. But instead, we have been set free to live as God created us to live, in loving him and loving others. This overcoming of the world is seen in our hatred for sin. Those who have been born again will now begin to hate sin. We will hate We will hate things like drugs and lying and pornography and love of money and selfishness. And we can go on and on. And rather, it will be seen in our new love for righteousness, for patience, for humility, for service to God, for gospel proclamation, and all that God's word commands of us. We will see a change in our desires and our lives will reflect one who has been born again. But how does our faith equip us to overcome the world? How does faith equip us to do this? Our victory in overcoming the world is not found in the mere act of faith itself. We all have faith in something. Everyone has faith in something or someone. But rather, our overcoming the world is found in the object of our faith, namely Jesus Christ. Victory is found in the saving work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. You see, no one in their own strength is able to overcome the world We were all enslaved to the world and bound to it, bound by its desires, bound by its schemes against God. But through Christ's perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection, he overcame the world. Unlike man, Christ lived a life free from the bondage of sin and death, from the bondage of the world. He lived with a perfect faith in God. His love for the Father superseded all else, And as a result, he perfectly loved his fellow man, and he was perfect in obedience to the Father, no matter what it cost him. But even though he was not bound to the world, he subjected himself to the consequences of sin and death the world requires of all of its participants. He did this so that he, being the perfectly loving, perfectly obedient man, he could overcome the consequence of the world and the power of sin and death for all those who believe. You see, by him giving his perfectly loving and perfectly obedient life as a sacrifice for our sins upon the cross, Jesus was able to make a way for dead, sinful men to overcome the world too. By dying and rising from the dead, Jesus paid for our sins in full, clearing our debt before God and giving us new life. Through his death, we are made right with God. And through his death, he claims victory for all those who put their faith in him. The world now has no power over Christ, for he has overcome it in its totality. The world has no power over him. He is victorious, and we are made victorious for those Who believe. All those who believe are made victorious in Him. Thus, those who have true faith in the victorious one join in His victory over the world, as they are no longer bound by the world either. 
they have now been set free and been made victors through their union with Jesus Christ. And this victory is a present reality for all who have been born of God. Through faith in the ultimate victor, we become overcomers of the world too. No doubt John had Jesus' word in mind here in John 16, verse 33, when Christ said to his disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What a great encouragement that ought to be for us. The world is a very dark and evil place. When we look at the headlines, we see the news, it is easy to get discouraged. When we contemplate our own daily struggles, we can feel overcome and overwhelmed at times. People we know and love are broken, are grieving, are struggling, and they are desperate for an escape. Yet in it all, Christ says that we can have peace. How? How in the world can we have peace in the midst of such darkness, in the midst of such evil that we see constantly around us? We can have peace because he has overcome the world on our behalf. Through Christ, we can have peace because we have been united to the one who has already, past tense, overcome the world. It is a done deal. He has overcome the world already. And this means that the world no longer has any ultimate power over us. It no longer has the power to bind us to its evil schemes. It no longer has any control over us in the war against God. No matter the pressures we face, no matter the persecution or tribulation we may endure, no matter what trials the world may bring to us, it has no power to harm the believer standing in Christ Jesus. The worst the world can do is kill the body, but that believer's precious soul is secured forever in Jesus Christ and in his victory. We are secured in him forever. Our faith is a victorious faith. And therefore, we must exercise it victoriously. The Christian faith is not a passive faith. It is not a once upon a time profession, but it is active faith that is exercised in our love and obedience to Christ. And that is why John makes it a present reality in verse four. For everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. Those who are born of God overcome the world. In the movie adaptation of Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, there is a scene during the Battle of Helm's Deep where all the forces of darkness are pounding on the doors of the keep where the last remaining forces of Rohan's army is holding out. You knew I was going to go to Lord of the Rings at some point. I mildly like it. I won't go into why it's different from the, actual, from the book. I won't do that to you guys. Don't worry. The forces of darkness, they're pounding on the keep. The last remaining force of, of the army is in there holding out. King Theoden, the king of Rohan, sighs in despair and he cries out to his soldiers that it is over. It is over for them. He is being overcome by the world and the forces of darkness. He says wearily, so much death. What can man do against such reckless hate? Aragorn, one of the main protagonists of the story, protests against the king. He protests against his despairing and encourages him to keep on fighting. And amid the despair, they remember the words of Gandalf that he would be returning with a mighty force that morning. 
They remember these words, and just then, as they are contemplating these things, dawn breaks on the city. And Theoden remembers Gandalf's words, realizing that victory is at hand. He and the last remaining men of the army charge, swords drawn on their horses, into the sea of their enemies and fight with incredible strength and courage. Why? Because Gandalf had arrived with a large host of the Rohirrim, or the horsemen, who come and they easily destroy the enemy army. Theoden was able to overcome the forces of darkness because of the victory that was already at hand. And even though the victory was achieved by Gandalf and the host of the Rohirrim, Theoden was victorious because of his relationship to Gandalf the victor. Had he cowered and given up in the keep, the enemy Urukai would have rushed in, overcome him, and killed him before Gandalf would have arrived. But he trusted in Gandalf's word, and he rode out to meet his foes, thus overcoming them and sharing in the victory that Gandalf brought. So too Christ is victorious now, and like the example of Gandalf coming, he is coming again to bring his victory to its final completion. Will we cower in the keep like Theoden, or will we be empowered to fight because of the, vic- the hope of victory that awaits us in Christ Jesus? This hope is a steadfast promise to all who have been born again and have put their trust and believed in Jesus Christ. He will not fail to bring it to pass. He is faithful and true. This is the hope that awaits those who have been born again. We'll be reading from Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. The Apostle Paul writes this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 37. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Is that where your hope lies? Is that where your hope lies? John asks rhetorically in verse 5, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Is your faith and hope in anything but Jesus Christ? If so, you will not overcome the world, but you will be overcome by it. But if your hope is in Christ, this overcoming victory is yours even right now at this moment. And it will be yours completely when he comes again to make all things new. So dear friends, are you overcoming the world in light of this glorious hope? When you examine your life, are you being overcome by the darkness of the world? Or are you overcoming it because of the victory that you already enjoy in Christ Jesus? How do you respond to the darkness of the world around you? Does it lead you to despair and anxiety? Or does it give you the peace that Christ gives and give you the desire to push back against the world in his strength? I have a friend who is not a believer and we were talking, and he was commenting on the state of our nation right now. 
He was overwhelmed and discouraged by the political unrest and the failure found in many parts of our government and our leaders. He was angered by the unjust treatment of the media and the frequent double standard that is applied to those in positions of power. He was troubled by the looming threat of war around the world and how the future seems hopelessly lost and no hope of correction. The darkness of the world seems like it could not be overcome in his life. Maybe I just described one of you. Maybe it's not the state of the nation that's overcoming you, but it is your ongoing anxiety or depression or sense of hopelessness. What would a right response to my friend be here? Well, first and foremost, what my friend ought to do is put his faith and trust in the one who has overcome the world and has promised to come again and make all things new. This faith is unshakable and steadfast because of the one in whom the faith is in. And whenever he feels tempted to despair over the failure of our leaders and those in our country, he should look to the king, not our leaders. He should look to the king instead who reigns victorious now and remember that he will never break one of his promises. He is the faithful one and he can be trusted. And how practically should he do this? He should be immersing himself in God's word in prayer and be amongst the body of believers to be reminded and encouraged of this great truth that we have a victorious king. He will hear God and his people remind him that he too can overcome the world through Christ rather than be overcome by it, no matter what may come of our nation and our world. Why is this good counsel? Why would this be good counsel to give to him? Because there is no hope for mankind except the hope that is found in Jesus Christ overcoming the world and the hope that Jesus offers the same victory over sin to those who put their trust in him. This alone is the hope that springs eternal in the life of the believer. There is no greater hope that you could give nor receive. Christ has overcome the world. Through faith, those who have been born of God also overcome the world. Christians, we are a people marked by victory, not defeat. Though the church may suffer persecution and loss, though tribulation may come, we are victorious sufferers because our king reigns in victory and we reign with him. The church wins. If you're in Christ, you've already won. You are already victorious in him. The world rages a losing battle against the Lord and his anointed. But the victory is secured and it can never, ever be lost. And it can cause us to truly sing as we had a chance to do last week. Go then earthly fame and treasure. Come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service pain is pleasure. With thy favor loss is gain. And we can say and remind ourselves, think what spirit dwells within me. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? We are victorious Christ is victorious. If we have been born again and we are in him, we are victorious too. How glorious indeed. I want to close with the incredibly moving story of the 19th century hymn writer, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Longfellow was married with six children. 
but was widowed after he was unable to save his wife from a fire in their house. And in a failed attempt to save her, he himself was severely burned, including much burns on his own face. He was left to father the six children on his own, the oldest of which would go serve in the Union Army during the Civil War two years after his wife's passing. And on the first day of December, 1863, Henry Longfellow received word that his eldest son was nearly killed after being shot through the neck and shoulder on the field of combat. Longfellow rushed to his son's bedside as the surgeons were going to attempt surgery that had the potential side effect to give him permanent paralysis. It was on Christmas Day, 1863, the widower wrote the hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. He wrote this at his son's bedside while his country was at war with itself. And while his own life was filled with incredibly dark sorrows, his wife passing just a matter of two years prior and his son on the edge of death now. He heard the Christmas bells ringing and many people were singing peace on earth. And as he pondered on the injustice, the violence and the evils of the world, he despaired and thought it a mockery to say peace on earth. The darkness of the world seemed to be overwhelming to him and overcoming him. And yet he thought a little longer and realized that though there is much wickedness in the world, there is a God who is victorious, who will judge all evil, and who offers true peace through the blood of his Son. It is in this state of mind that Longfellow wrote this beloved hymn. I heard the bells on Christmas Day their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each steel accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now listen now, saints. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Be of good cheer, my friends. Christ has overcome the world, and he will overcome it perfectly when he comes again to make all things new. The story is true. Verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we so often give in to despair. We forget this great truth and this glorious promise that your Son reigns victorious now, that sin and death and the world have no hold on him. And because we have been united to Christ, they have no hold on us either. 
we praise you for being such a glorious God, for being so good that you do not leave us in our sin, you do not leave us to be enslaved to the world, but rather you've given us life in Christ, that we can be free in Christ, that we can overcome the world, that though the wrong is strong and the wrong is powerful, the wrong shall fail and the righteous will prevail through your Son. Remind this, Father, to each and every one of us here. Remind this to to me, to my brothers and sisters as we go throughout our days and weeks and we are often surrounded by darkness and evil and wicked things. Help us to remember that you are on the throne, that you are good, and that you will, bring, you will come again to make all things new. We love you, Father, and we thank you for the promise of your word, the promise of your Son, and the Holy Spirit that is with us. Help us to live as people of love and obedience in light of the overcoming world and victory we have now. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.